What follows is a dialogue between myself and Toby about the life and times of Director Thomas Arlington of the NIA. These are our thoughts about his world and his efforts as we travel through space and time, through the window. next question I asked you, or next paragraph, actually, because I there was a bit of a lead-up here. I was saying, the handbook itself does not imply the idea of the far-flung communities having a voice in the operation of the new RSA government. In truth, the connotations of total conscription seems to lay out the idea of a lack of freedom in the same way that a soldier is often not free to disagree with his orders. And yet, the existence of personal accounts in the handbook implies that the government still welcomes those same voices in order to breed familiarity and connection. Blaine's story in particular comes to mind, where she is given the authority with her fellow cartographers to find a way to split the Gordian knot in the case of the cannibals so that the most good can be achieved overall Mm. so my question leading off from this was is the cognitive dissonance of these two ideas the the lack of freedom and yet the encouragement of people to speak is that workable in the larger sense does does it come does that come across as of equal measure in the text Hmm. well that is a good point it is one of those elements of Arlington as a man that we will get more insight into in the future. But there is a paradoxical sense in the man of him working towards making the world into a better place and entreating people to work with him in this venture, while also fearing and mistrusting that same world and those who would work against him in this. It seems like it's a case of compartmentalizing and containing people's sense of that wider world. Arlington is arguing that for now, America is the world that everyone here has to work with and that within that world, we must all work together and seek help from people of all walks of life. There is a wide and diverse population in America, even after all this tragedy, and he needs to unify them. But one effective way of doing that is to point to the rest of the world and say, this is the outside world that is unfamiliar and unknown to us. Everything within our lands, that is what is known. And that includes the peoples we see around us. It's not a perfect solution. And as you point out, it's loaded with hypocrisies. But it does strike as someone doing the best they can with what they've got, which is a country that's still feeling the split of the Civil War. Mm. Something you alluded to earlier was the idea that Thomas was hoping that after all that these 
far-flung communities had been through in order to survive up till this point that they would appreciate the idea of not necessarily be, being able to continue as they had been and to be convinced by the logic of someone making clear what the stakes were overall and that even if they're stable now, that further sacrifice has to be made. And some of that is going to be in sharing the resources, sharing the, I was going to say manpower, but really person power, because there's one thing that uh, the handbook makes clear. It's that it's placing just as many women as men into places of power, including in fact, more female voices than male voices in terms of the stories that are shared. Mm. Um, so there is a definite iron in place and an order that Arlington is attempting to instill. Mm. But I, I also suspect that he doesn't necessarily want to have to enforce some of the implied responses should people not agree with the RSA's plan and instead just use it as a reflection of the measure of seriousness of the state of America, I guess. He's being both explicit about his intentions, but also kind of being vague enough to not really be inciting the opposition because he makes no bones about the fact that if people are standing against this, if they're going away, they're going into the West, he views that as working against the survival of everyone. Mm. And he can't, like, he logics it out. He is saying that, you know, every time a wendigo bites one of us they we lose that person while they gain one of their number and that mm -hmm. they possibly have the capacity to infect others and that you know it's disheartening to the rest of people and he actually is sort of saying there's a pattern between what the wendigo is doing and people who are essentially seceding from this mm. new reunified states of America. We've talked about how this is kind of like a manifesto rather than propaganda, but that is pretty propaganda-y stuff there, just to mm -hmm. be saying, like, this, the person who does this is equivocal to these monsters that mm -hmm. you, that people are familiar with and who have, we have been going into detail about in this story and he doesn't necessarily like go as far as he could in solidifying and reinforcing that comparison but he definitely plants that idea in people's heads and i think that that's a little insidious uh like in a way i think that his iron that he is saying with this is that it's kind of like he doesn't want to get to a point where he is fighting another civil war with the people who are against this mm -hmm. but he has to nevertheless like if the Kartokova's handbook is there to give people some assurance of 
the intentions of moving forward. I don't think he can get away with not acknowledging what you do in the eventuality of opposition. And I think that in his mind, stating his intentions means stating, even if it's in a vague way, what his intentions are with those he disagrees with or who Mm. disagree with him more specifically. Obviously, we are going to get into the actual feelings present in Thomas Arlington's head soon enough. We are trying to discuss the handbook on its own terms, without the insight we already have into the feelings and experiences of Thomas himself, besides those expressed in the handbook. Therefore, we won't, at the moment, talk about how he actually feels about groups unwilling to work together with the RSA for whatever reason. But putting aside obvious groups that you might imagine would want to rise up against the RSA, much the way the Confederacy rose up against the Union, we can discuss the story of Mary Sampson and her followers, as that is already history to our audience. Back in our discussion of that novel, we tried to put ourselves in her shoes, trying to understand her reaction. Now that the handbook itself is text, and we read as well as heard the terms that Arlington set, we can perhaps understand better why she and hers did not feel comfortable placing that much trust in the RSA. But I also cannot help but wonder what Thomas's reaction would be to Mary's words, and reflect on two different tragedies as a result of her reaction to the RSA. The first of these being that those Arlington would have wanted to stay chose to risk conflict with the RSA armor at the border, and those that chose to stay are not led by a man that he'd want in any position of authority, his very cooperation being obsequious rather than intelligent. And the second being that had things been different, and the handbook that Annie read was the second printing, if Thomas's actual story might have changed Mary's mind, rather than just being told second-hand by the well-meaning but clumsy attempt by Abigail. Keep this second thought in mind when we get to Dramatis Personae and a discussion of Thomas's story. The cartographer's handbook is basically laying out the argument for a response that is required during a time of emergency, Mm. I guess. It's laying out a new order, but the order that it's laying out is far more constrictive than what came before. I don't, Mm. I don't actually know at what point, because I only know, I only understand the U S from a modern standpoint. And I guess this honestly could go all the way back to some of the founding arguments and everything like that, especially since, based on some of the historical stuff that I've learned about on you through YouTube and everything like that, makes it more entertaining to find out about a lot about those early trials and tribulations. There was a lot of pushback in the early days against the idea of a federal government to begin with, and states very much focused on the right to be able to govern themselves. Mm. And, I mean, it's some of those values that specifically set off 
the Civil War to begin with was pressure coming down from the federal government in regards to what those southern states could and couldn't do with the property they own, so to speak. And I know that it was more, it was about more than slavery, but slavery was one of the big hot button topics and everything like that. For not only the black population at the time, but for, I think, most people in the time since and the legacy of that war, it may not have been all that the war was about, but it kind of became what the war was about for most people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's the thing that caused everyone to respond the strongest, I mm. guess. It became it became the flashpoint as, as things continued on and everything like that. And no, I am not a historian or someone that can speak intelligently on capitalism or white supremacy and the roles these played in white men getting power and wealth off the fruits of slavery whether in the southern states or elsewhere. But if there is anything that is discussed more in 2021 than at any other time, it's that many powerful first world nations are built off the exploitation of less powerful peoples and cultures. The proof is right there in the way the foundation of the U.S. is framed, the 13 colonies. With the original 13 states came colonizing forces and attitudes, and actions. It's why the word colonizer is specifically used as a derogatory term in Black Panther. The darkness inherent in the growth and prominence of the U.S. is baked in, just like it was for the British Empire. We have to face it, and own up to it, and fix it, because otherwise it will bring us down without any need for a Wendigo apocalypse. Sorry, I'll uh, I'll get down off my soapbox and return us to the previous discussion. The question then becomes, again, this is something that specifically came back up in the conversation with Mary Sampson and was the reason why she took her group of people and decided decided to leave New Athens was not necessarily because she didn't agree with the idea of working together, it's that she found the strictures as laid out by Thomas Arlington to be so despotic is the wrong word. I don't, I, I'm trying to think of a word that implies um, rigid order, but doesn't imply... Emphatic? Um, maybe. After giving it more consideration at the editing desk... The word I would use is perhaps authoritarian, although I'd consider the idea more circumscribed than that. The purpose of the handbook is describing a response to a national emergency, and the role of Thomas Arlington seems not unlike the concept of the Roman dictator, a very specific role that was created by the Republic in times of national emergency. They were given supreme authority to act, within a specific sphere, to deal with said emergency. And the idea of it was that as soon as the emergency was over, the position would be dissolved and the power given back to the people. Of course, 
One of the most famous of the Roman dictators was Julius Caesar, who went on to seize power. So it's understandable if students of history would be recalcitrant to repeat it. Thomas is making the argument that this is what's necessary right now in order to weather whatever is coming next. And the way Mary expresses it, she is worried about the federal government never relinquishing that power at all mm. to that's... make the argument that it's going to be necessary forever. Mm. If this is what's necessary now and we get past now, what's like state will the country be in in terms of sticking with this for the next part? And I think, as you say, it's not necessarily the idea of unifying that Samson is against. It's the implied sort of hand on the gun like that Arlington has as he's delivering these words. Mm -hmm. He has one hand on the book as he's reading aloud and another on the pistol at his side, just like in case there's someone who is going to go against it that mm -hmm. I think she feels worried about is that it's not what happens if you follow it. It's what happens if you don't follow it that she gets sort of cagey about. Or what happens if things ostensibly get better and people will be like, okay, now can we have proper elections and proper representation? And can we get those freedoms back, please? The ones that mm -hmm. we were literally fighting for during the Civil War. And the people in power start giving new excuses for why, no, uh, there's a new enemy or whatever it is. And it's hard not to understand that point of view because... It's not exactly that something that's not relevant in modern America either. Yeah, it's something I think that's why this time period works is because it is this time with a very an iconic conflict that sticks in people's minds that you can understand the multiple viewpoints at play, but it's also applicable enough to current modern circumstances that you can kind of apply the responses to responses to things in our own time. Mm-hmm. Hmm. <sighs> <And> yeah. <laughs> heavy stuff. And, like... Yeah, Cartographers is a heavy book. Mm -hmm. I think that of all of the New Century books, I think it is the one that is the most without humour, or mm. the sort of trench humor to alleviate things it is not entirely without it i think like the medical advice is very amusing at times the stuff with the clementine has like mm, a sort mm. of dry humor to it and there's just little bits and pieces here and there that do show the personality that is there to each of the people contributing to it but it is absolutely structured to be this quite sincere declaration and as such it doesn't really have the wiggle room to provide those moments of tension diffusing levity and while we did gloss over the stories of Kaufman and Tudor here we're definitely going to be talking more about that when we actually discuss their individual vignettes so look forward to that that's actually one of the more heartening and relevant aspects to the change that we see in Arlington 
when we move from Cartographer's Handbook to his self-titled book, because throughout Cartographer's Handbook, which is the first time that we actually hear Arlington's voice, mm. it's all it, he he's speaking in the voice of authority, the mm. for lack of a better word, patriarch, trying to mm. say this is the way things are. These are the sacrifices that are required. This is what we have to do in order to survive as a people, as a country. And mm. one of the very first experiences in Arlington, when we get into that, is revealing that even in that intense voice that Thomas is always speaking in, you can tell when he's amused by something mm. that there will be turns of phrase that he uses in order to hint at a sometimes cynical and sometimes more playful sense of humor not not quite in the same way that uh some of the other characters are and everything mm. like that but the point is is that the man's not made of stone he, he has his own across, brand of humor. Yeah, exactly. And he comes across as made of stone in Cartographer's Handbook. And it's because Cartographer's Handbook is the declaration, and mm. he's delivering that declaration in a very even tone that, like, it has to kind of have, mm-hmm. to an extent, a slightly sort of monotone evenness to it so that it can be maintained and sustained because mm-hmm. it's kind of a it's a status report of things he wants you to listen to the ideas more than he wants you to listen to him he's not mm. unaware of the fact that his presence has a big impact on this book as a whole and its identity both within the world of new century and as a book for us to read as fans of new century at the same time i think what he is trying to do is get you to listen to his words and not just to be guided by prejudice on that Mm -hmm. and for full disclosure i do find cartographer's handbook quite a difficult book to listen to and it Mm. part of it is the subject matter it you're being invited to sort of consider the state of things in a very bleak state of things even Mm -hmm. with hope mixed in but it is because a lot of the vocal performances have this sort of evenness as they're relaying the facts or communicating ideas and things like that and i think that the moments where the vocal performances deviate it really does punctuate and emphasize those moments like maya with um with catherine's story or uh daniel floyd for that initial buckner yeah and i think that you actually do see a bit more of Arlington's sort of humanity come through in his voice when he's talking about his own experiences and he's not he's not wavering too far away from the voice you've been hearing the whole book but he is allowing that like because he's giving you this window to his own life he's allowing more of himself to come through so I think that the delivery is appropriate to what this book is it's a textbook but it is the new century book that I will kind of zone out on the most because I'll just be listening to a series of lines and then realize, Oh shit, I wasn't like focusing on any of that for the last half minute. I need to Mm -hmm. go back and uh, 
really take that in. So that is one side effect of the cartographer's handbook as manifesto side of things. Mm -hmm. For the long-term fans, you might already be thinking of a future chapter in Arlington where a conversation is had with Thomas himself on some of these very weaknesses of the handbook in-universe. So hearing us discuss some of those aspects here is amusing, to a degree. But to avoid significant spoilers, we'll table that discussion for now. The thing that I almost wonder is... You almost wonder? Well, we can skip over that then. <laughs> Sorry for being pedantic. It's okay. Diegetically, us, hmm. the audience, if we're, if we're engaging with the audio drama here then we are having Thomas narrate the bulk of the book because he's the one that ostensibly wrote it. Mm. He is the voice of authority. And one could potentially argue that Thomas is better at certain kinds of public speaking and not good at others, one might say, because of the overall mm. seriousness of his character. And mm. the idea of sending out cartographer representatives whose voices are far more approachable, like in the case of Annie, mm -hmm. that the context of the book might be more palatable in a different voice, mm. so to speak. Yeah. Some, someone I... that they potentially find less intimidating, even. Mm, which I think is probably why Annie has as much success as a cartographer as she does, because she is intimidating when you are like aware of the like her abilities and you see her skills in action. But I think she will probably, you know, she walks up to somewhere and people are maybe a bit more inclined to sort of, you know, listen to her because she's short. She's uh, like just everything Cheerful. about her cheerful she definitely is consciously trying to put people at ease and even when she's negotiating with uh, carl and virgil in secret rooms she's trying to keep things cheery even though like they've already gotten to a point of like a shootout she's mm -hmm. killed some of their associates but nevertheless she is trying to actually sort of keep things maybe, you know, a bit upbeat. And when Abigail chimes in, you can mm. see that she is, like, rattling the front that she is presenting and she will go, let me handle this. It's it, yeah. very much, it's very deliberate. And I think that that is part of the duties of the cartographer that is sort of somewhat touched on in the book of the section that I think is almost literally called duties of a cartographer and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's the like diffusing tense situations but it's also the idea of how you relay this book and i think it does work as both a book and an audio drama because the idea is that these books that are going out into america are either being given to people for them to read or they're being read aloud at settlements for people to hear so the two formats kind of represent what the in-universe experience is of the handbook yeah that, that whole thing that you were saying a moment ago in terms of like 
Annie is able to balance out the idea expressed in the handbook of approaching people with an open hand, but having the willingness to lift her gun out of the holster as needed to fight back in order to protect the values that she is coming to the table with, basically. Mm. Her, her her open persona is one of friendliness, but she can switch that off and deal death as easily as anyone if that actually comes to it. Mm-hmm. It, it, it. It actually recalls that some of the conversation that we were having when she's in the middle of trying to convince Carl and Virgil that she does that trick with the playing card. It's a sign of her skill but she is trying to frame it in such a way that, yes, it's an indication of the fact that she could very easily end them if she wanted to, but she does the thing in an impressive way as well in order to not quite be charismatic per se, but to be, like, aspirational, maybe? Yeah. Like, this is the quality of the people that are on the side of good. Mm. Um, don't you want to, you know, be like that? Be a cartographer. A All the cool yeah. kids are doing it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And it's also a way of like, kind of diffusing the tension of like the guns by kind of making it so that the last thing in people's minds, like the most recent thing that happened involving a gun in this situation isn't that they were shooting at each other, but that she pulled off a cool trick with it. It mm. kind of like, maybe as a distraction from what they were just doing, even though it also serves the purpose of being, like, putting them in their place of knowing, like, okay, if she wants to, she could totally hit us. It's just more like it accomplishes that. But, hey, isn't it also kind of a neat trick? Yeah. Yeah. And it it even works on Abigail. Like, it's kind of there, not only whether this was intended or not is, like, irrelevant, but it not only distracts Carl and Virgil, it distracts Abigail when she goes, mm-hmm. okay, well, that was impressive. <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. true. I had actually forgotten how much we talked about the elements of secret rooms in relation to the handbook. And part of me wondered if I should trim this out, because we were literally discussing topics we covered long ago. But considering how many episodes there are between those secret rooms chapters and the cartographer's handbook, what with interviews and Tiger's Eye and all the news of the century, I decided to leave this in. To remind everyone of some of those past conversations, in order to showcase the handbook as the connective tissue between secret rooms in Arlington that it has come to be. Now I'm just getting this like picture of like Annie like in a tense situation. It's like, uh, hey, look what I can do. Now what a well, Beth. I can't believe we fell for that again. (laughs) Um, Old man Cole. And I'd have done it too if you kids hadn't come along. You didn't have a response to this question back when I originally wrote it. And maybe some of the content would be better saved for when we actually talk about him as a person. In... Section 7, 
that's another thing is that the, yeah. uh, the the handbook refers to individual parts as sections rather than chapters, which makes sense because chapters are for a narrative and this is quote unquote not a narrative. But the voice that Thomas ends up invoking uh, is that of Nathaniel Curtis, and we're definitely going to get to see more of him. General Curtis is the voice of an experienced hand at the wheel, leading soldiers in the reclaiming of territories and cities especially. But he is also a voice that Southerners would be more inclined to listen to, due to him being a Confederate general during the Civil War that ended up joining the RSA after the fact. They're going to have sympathy for him the same way they would for Catherine Holloway. It's, it's the reverse of it, actually. It's instead of a potent civilian matriarch that managed to survive and thrive uh, all on her own, mm. or as the figurehead of, you know, keeping everybody else's children safe, here is directly a military man that has history and success and knows how to be a leader of men. Um, mm. the, the beginning of this account is all about, this is what we're actually facing. And that's like a serious amount of loss and potential amount of enemy that we face. So Curtis has to be the one to kind of sell the idea that we can succeed against these odds. Do you mm. feel like Curtis does a good job of selling that? Curtis is the one who is saying, like, Some leaders hide their weaknesses from those who follow, striving to appear as a paragon. I cannot relate to a paragon. He doesn't necessarily hold to, like, the idea of giving people paragons, right? I don't remember that line specifically. Although by time of editing, I am very well acquainted with this line. I just had other things in my mind when I asked Toby about this section of the handbook. He was speaking about the experience of marching with his troops mm. and what it was like to actually fight the Wendigo on Moss rather than mm. as individuals, which is what a lot of the other accounts were about so far. Yeah. He was trying to talk about some of the elements, the things that the army was basically trying to invoke in themselves in order to keep up morale in the face mm. of heavy casualties. In, including like the sort of whooping chant mm -hmm. that like that he then would say that like he knows several people who have like emphatically said, please don't make that even in jest around me. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I, I bring up his comment about not buying into the idea of giving people paragons because a not only is it one of those moments of just because we're both people who have listened to alex's own opinions on media and mm -hmm. things over the years it we can't help but draw comparisons and say this is something that i think is quite similar to what i believe i remember him talking about with the mass oh, effect okay. games and the yeah. idea of like you know striving to be a paragon just doesn't feel like the sort of thing that is of value to him for the things that he takes inspiration from. And I yeah, think he, that... Okay, he, here's the line. I found it as I was just uh, reviewing. Mm. I'd actually forgotten. You, you remember this line and I didn't. 
Some leaders hide their weaknesses from those who follow, striving to appear as a paragon. I cannot relate to a paragon. That's they it. occupy a space in a man's mind best left for other products of fiction. No man is without fear, and the mm. ones who are truly, truly frightened me. Yeah, that is... I think one of those moments of like it almost feels like statement of the author moments. Mm. Like it just feels like a look into camera kind of moment. Mm. And that's not me throwing shade. That's just a like common thing. And I often quite like those moments because mm -hmm. it just is a moment of clarity within different texts. The reason I bring that up in response to your question of does it feel like something that's feasible, that's real, is that that feels like something that is said be kind of like we want to actually get into the is this goal realistic and to have that question be sort of engaged with with someone who is not about dispelling people's fears by appearing to be a paragon mm -hmm. i think adds to the credibility that what he is saying is sincere that he is not trying to hide things from you the tactics and the just the experience of the battlefield and his lived experience of people kind of being unified even when he lived through the conflict and how everyone on that field that he recalls was kind of unified by just wanting to all go home there is the implication that this is something that can unify people now is that mm -hmm. everyone in the disparate parts of this fractured america just wants to return home and home is perhaps a like version of their life before or at least a version of their life without the wendigo so i think that curtis's account is something that acknowledges the cost of it and it's a sort of hard pill to swallow mm -hmm. but i think that it is positioned to be one of those that not in spite of that but because of that it makes the fight that people like him are prepared to do feel like one that can be won by showing that same level of confronting the truth and facing it. Mm -hmm. I do sort of appreciate the idea of Curtis wanting to say that the importance is the goal and not him. I mm. also feel like regardless of what he says, people are going to idolize him regardless. Like he can't necessarily control when you when you are communicating to others, when you are a leader of others, you can't always control what someone gets out of the message, so to speak. But the fact that he tries to come across as human speaks a great deal as to the quality of the kind of person that he is. And mm. it puts into mind a piece from another part of fiction that I think I'm going to throw at you before we dive deeper into his personal narrative for uh, part two of our look at the elements of cartographers. So that I'll, I'll, I'll send that to you relatively soon. I don't think it should require a lot of reading time, but it will require a little bit of additional context for you to peruse over as it relates back to Curtis. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I had forgotten about this by the time we started talking about Curtis again, and since I don't want this to go on forever, I will just share the context with all of you. 
During Grant Morrison's tenure writing the Justice League comic book, he included a story where Dream of the Endless, as in from Gaiman's Sandman comic book, is asking the League for help due to a child he owes a debt to. And as Dream is guiding Superman, Diana, and then-Green Lantern Kyle Rayner into the dreams of the space conqueror known as Starro, he takes a moment to ask Kyle about his doubts, specifically as they relate to him being a new and untried hero, stepping into the shoes of the previous Lantern, Hal Jordan, the long-standing protector of Earth known to some as the Man Without Fear. In response to Kyle's doubts about his ability, Dream assures Kyle that he will surpass Jordan, that he already knows what his predecessor could never learn. Kyle doesn't believe this, and asks Dream what he could possibly know that Hal didn't. The answer that Dream gives is that Kyle knows fear. Therefore, Curtis's words reminded me of this moment, as a clarification of why accepting fear as a part of you is important, rather than trying to deny it. I will just say before we move on that something that occurred to me is that we were talking about delivery and performances, that mm -hmm. I think what's significant about Curtis's performance, Alex's performance as Curtis, rather, is that as opposed to some of the characters in the book who are kind of like as they're reading their segment, it's almost as if they're performing or doing a declaration. His is kind of the most sort of dryly conversational in a sort of he is just kind of barely getting the words out because it's sort of like, okay, I'm not going to say anything that I don't mean, but I want like there to be no pomposity or no puffed up air other than what is really there to my words. Mm -hmm. So of the final questions I was asking you, the first one was, do you think Arlington comes across as charismatic enough in the handbook to rally the American people to his cause? And your, I don't want to say your response surprised me necessarily, but I'm not entirely sure I knew what the impetus was for my asking the question to begin with. And so therefore I found your response and the reasoning behind it intriguing. Well, I think it's an important question to ask because it's really the sort of like the, the most important question at the end of this book is, do we think that Arlington has a chance of succeeding at what he's trying to do with this book? Mm -hmm. Because the whole thing it is it is an entreaty so it's a case of like do you think that his argument was successful mm -hmm. or at least like do you think that his character his charisma does enough to help with that and honestly i don't think so i mean to me yes i think he does come across as charismatic but that comes partly from the richness of his voice as portrayed by Alex and from future familiarity I've developed with the character through Arlington. But within this book, he's kind of the most impartial voice while everyone else is more personal and open. I mean, 
this is a sentence I wrote uh, many months ago, but I will add that that may be unfair because he does end up being very open about his own lived experience and his own identity. Mm-hmm. But and, and that puts him in a very vulnerable position, mm-hmm. though it should be noted that that comes nearer to the end of the book than it is not him stepping out and saying that straight away, which does say something about Mm -hmm. his level of trust in how people will receive it. And it was not even present within the first book, I believe, the first edition of the book. Yeah, and well, that's the thing, is that without spoiling too much, there are also reasons that Arlington specifically gets into as to why it was not included. And there's Mm. even a reason why, why his story was put so far back in the book to begin with Mm. Uh, to a certain extent he doesn't really have that much ego overall he feels like the message i think is more important than him Mm. and yeah yeah to to, to spoil a tiny amount from arlington at one point he specifically says i would have been more than happy to not include my name on the cover at all mm. because it's it's the I, I want the book to speak for itself i want the ideas to speak for mm. themselves i don't need a claim or fame or recognition for what i've done what mm. i need is for people to the wor- do what he's saying do what he's saying i need i need for the world to embrace these ideas so that we have a chance of not fading from this earth basically i think that is why the additional near the end is as necessary as it is because it opens up the man who was a closed book as you would say he literally would have scrubbed his name from this book if he could have and his including this story of his is a roll of the dice as far as the inhabitants of america are concerned does his life inspire these sympathetic or dissuade the unsure? The answer is always is a little of both. In his defense, he is very assured as people come, and that's probably what they will hope will win people over, a stern, authoritative voice that says, yes, we will survive this, we do have a plan, and here is our multi-step list of goals to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So my answer of... I don't think that Arlington is charismatic enough in the handbook to rally the American people to his cause is kind of me saying that it's not that I don't think he's a charismatic character. I just don't know that he provides enough that will convince the unconvinced. Well, convincing the unconvinced is a topic that has growing sentiment uh over the evolution of new century especially since this is literally the original beginning of this story and we've already mm-hmm. discussed in a couple different episodes in a couple different books about how the shape of the story changed as current events changed in the US and the UK in terms of people just seeming to make choices that 
hurt the whole overall as nations gave in to some of our worst impulses, so to speak. The hope that Arlington had that people could, in fact, be persuaded by logic and that he and others could invoke enough empathy that would overcome any previous hatred and fears doesn't necessarily end up the way he hopes. Mm. So, and that's a difficult, complicated subject, which really needs to be put into proper context as the events of not just Arlington unfolds, but also Steam Heart and then Phase 2 books. And honestly, some of the stuff on the other side of the ocean in Princess Thieves as well. But yeah, the the, the mm. door the door that Arlington is opening in the cartographer's handbook, the hand that he is offering to other people is unfortunately the American people, by and large, are potentially going to let him down. And that's this not is, necessarily his fault, mm, but yeah. This is, I think, what makes Arlington a compelling character and what we will be getting into in this season between Cartographer's Handbook and Arlington, the book, is that Arlington is embodied by the dilemma of wanting to make change and knowing that that comes with reaching out a hand to the wider public but still being guided or affected by the dilemma of knowing that that's what you need to do to make change happen but holding this fear of frankly a mistrust of those people that mm -hmm. he needs to trust them and yet he has very good reason not to that is it's more than compelling it's highly relatable mm -hmm. because as we say as you have said in recent times this assurance this repeated tendency of this faceless broader public to decide to do things that are for its own not betterment but detriment it is something that speaks to a feeling of enraged frustration that desperately wants to have an outlet but has so little that 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 outlet can reach and I think that Cartographers is the first step in this journey to mm -hmm. see that because this is the entreaty and we will see where that takes us. It honestly just makes me think of the circumstances of it are different because the comment was made not in the case of race relations, but in the case of national relations. It was in the case of general human nature rather than the body politic of specific countries but 
the line that comes to mind is young John Connor watching two kids playing it, shooting each other with toy guns, and then turning to the T-800, Uncle Bob, and asking, We're not going to make it, are we? People, I mean. It's in your nature to destroy yourselves. And that's not an idea that we really want to embrace, but it's also not an idea that we can't deny has some foundation. Hmm. And that that's the note that we come to when I asked the final question of these talking points. How does the handbook make us feel on an emotional level overall? I've talked about how this is difficult to listen to because as much as there are elements of hope, I don't think there will ever be a new century's book entry, installment, whatever, that is devoid of hope. I, mm. I think that if that were the case, then not only New Century, but Alex himself would be done. Mm -hmm. And so I can never say that an experience is without hope, but nevertheless, it is a bleak situation we find ourselves in mm -hmm. as much as we have this battle plan to take ourselves out of it. And sort of compiling that with the even declaration of this is what we're going to do, it becomes this difficult text to get through despite the fact that i feel like i've returned to this story almost more than any of the other books in new century whether it's because this was the first installment of it uh, that chronologically or me being curious or like wanting to cross-check info that was in this it's something that as much as it is a text that you can actually miss out and still get the broader like narrative of new century without it it is nevertheless quite an important book in terms of as things develop as you understand more about this world realizing some of the things that weren't included in this book and we see that as early as secret rooms with we luckily have someone who is very familiar with the contents of the cartographer's handbook and how james says like why was this not included in mm -hmm. the handbook when he sees signs of the Wendigos having some sort of community and building something that's more than just individual predators and surviving creatures. Mm -hmm. So the handbook is something that I find difficult to get through. And yet when I finish with it, I've been very open particularly on the News of the Century installments of our show, where I talk about what a new book meant to me, mm -hmm. of like what use I got out of it, how, I, how it becomes a tool that I use to kind of feel me, add wind to my sails as I like navigate everything in my own life. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that if I was to apply that to this and... I think it would be that it creates this not necessarily heightened emotion, but this sort of 
distilled emotion of something that is a somewhat numb acknowledgement that things can be broken Mm -hmm. fundamentally in the world that there is a bleak situation we find ourselves in but that there is nevertheless something that we can draw from which is that there are other people who feel this numb bleakness and they have found ways to have little victories to feel like their work is contributing to something that is making life for themselves or the people around them or even the whole country as a whole or the world a little bit better even if it's just a little bit and some of the stuff some of the stuff that lucy weatherfield was talking about very much so yeah yeah and and on top of that the idea of you know it's a popular aphorism but the idea of despair shared is Mm despair or the the actual term is sadness shared is sadness halved and having people relate their stories and as you say talk about the difficult things they have had to go through Mm. in the hope that that sparks a chord with others but also trying to not have that be the end of the story Mm. is very thematic I think I've realized what it is. Cartographer's Handbook is a group therapy session that Mm. maybe wasn't necessarily a turning point, but you nevertheless got something from it that feels like you're heading in a positive direction. I like that. I like Mm. that that metaphor. And on top of that, when we talk about endings, I mean, we're, we're... when we, when we finally discuss individual stories, we're mm. going to have a wrap-up session in terms of, like, how do these different aspects blend together and create a more cohesive whole? But mm. the addition of, at the very end, Commander Wilson's story and mm-hmm. relating the first experience from someone else's point of view of the existence of the wind door opens up a sense of awe and wonder Mm. that this new world has mysteries to be solved Mm. and new experiences to share. Mm. I think that the addition at the end, it speaks volumes of how the people involved feel about it or maybe what they were intending with its inclusion. Because on the one hand, you think to yourself, why the hell are we only mentioning this now? Like what like this feels like something that we need like an extra couple of sections because you're divulging this information to the general public and it's like what what how are they meant to make head or tail of like what this means or something like that and Mm -hmm. i think that what it is is that if the cartographer's handbook serves a function its primary function is to get people to like essentially to establish a working 
base of operations across the country so that like we can regroup that's what the book is trying to do it's a communal effort to regroup mm-hmm. and the windows is kind of like you know what we do next kind of thing mm-hmm. but i think it's also somewhat positioned to deliberately be inflammatory in the sense of like getting people talking because it's something that's just hanging at the end of the book to just kind of be like wait what because of that i think it's there to instill like you just set something off and see what happens because i Mm. think that they really have such little information on this phenomenon that i think certain characters who've whose names start with a j are (laughs) probably hoping to get all sorts of accounts come forward as a result of this sort of little tantalizing tidbit at the end Mm -hmm. but i think that for someone like arlington it's like okay this is fine and all but i don't he doesn't want this to be distracting from the like very pressing matter of getting everybody centered on what Mm -hmm. the primary task at hand is that's just regrouping Yes, but I'm I, I'm I'm actually going to throw back a counterpoint there, because oh. yes, because I agree that the cartographer's handbook has an overall goal in mind, but mm-hmm. one of the things that maybe we didn't cover because it came in right at the end and is really more of a stinger for what comes next is that we see that initial scene as the epilogue to Secret Rooms where someone comes in to tell Director Arlington about the British Explorer. They actually name-check him as Wilson in there, saying Mm. that he's found a window and Mm. that it's a reputable source and that his subordinate thinks that this will suit as the epilogue for the second edition, an epilogue that Thomas did want to put into place. Mm. So maybe they didn't necessarily want this in particular, but that means that its inclusion is definitely strategic. Yes. And it's something that they wanted to implant in people's mind after a lot of the other structural stuff is put into place. Mm. I like that word. It is strategic, yes. Yeah. And on top of that, I think by including it in the book as being like, this is an account that was related to the existing government that we have strong belief in the provenance of mm-hmm. and because later on like specifically during some of the gathering of stories that was taking place in secret rooms mm-hmm. they were writing down all of the anecdotal stuff uh, specifically of Malloy he's the big one in terms of like telling tall tales and everything like that but of the, a the... white tiger <laughs> Oh, a moth man. Yeah, exactly. Um, the point is, is that the cartographers themselves are already primed 
to be wondering about mm. what other strange things exist out there, but they want the general public to be open to the idea that maybe they experience something weird and they are trying to tell themselves that it's something that didn't actually happen, that it was a result of stress or panic or like it because it doesn't fit in with their normal belief in the way things are but if the government says look we believe these stories we believe unusual tales of seemingly supernatural stuff happening mm. that might embolden them specifically to come forward with stories they wouldn't necessarily been felt free to tell anybody else because they might have thought that this person was going mad or something like that. Mm. Like, not everyone's going to be Malloy in terms of, like, you know, he's an entertaining old coot telling wild tales because his framing of his stories, we were like, yeah, these are things that happened to me and my son or my nephew or whoever it was that he was talking uh, about the different experiences and everything like that. Mm. And him telling those tales feel more like the, enter, the the equivalent of like potential entertainment rather than say if you look at something like Beauty and the Beast and Belle's father coming back into town and trying to convince everyone that Belle had been kidnapped by this monstrous bipedal talking beast literally mm. so yeah it, it, he was it's in here tonight raving Exactly. So it's the, the mm. framing is important, and that means that more rational people wouldn't necessarily would be worried about how these stories would be received by others if they were trying to convince people that they were things that actually happened that they should be worried about and everything like that. Mm. Of the many stones that like cartographer's handbook is trying to sort of throw into the wider pond of America, I think this one is kind of done with the intention of like making a lot of ripples happen as a result of it because it wants to kind of set off a chain of things because this is something that they have there in the dark here, so they want to put it out there and say, okay. Not only can the general public should like not only do we want the general public to be coming forward with this, we want our cartographers to actually be on the lookout mm. for it because like right, because it is know. the cartographer's handbook. This is yeah. something that they are supposed to memorize and take to heart as much as it being a, a dialogue with the American people. Exactly. Precisely. That's what they are on the lookout for. And I think it expands what it is they're mapping out. It's a funny thing because the way it's mentioned in this is very much not these portals to other places that the spread of the Wendigo came from. On paper, that's something that could very much be an opportunity for exploration. I think the handbook is actually saying we know where ground zero is we know where the like origin point of this comes from but it's fascinating to me that this happens after thomas is trying to quell people's questions of 
what about the rest of the world to mm. not think about that because it's like okay don't think about the rest of the world but hey if you do hear about other worlds do actually you know come forward with that it's somewhat of a mixed message but i think it also is an important point of characterization that i don't think thomas is necessarily interested in exploring those other worlds he just wants to find the gates to them he wants to essentially find the access points to these leaks and to find a way of plugging them up somewhat mm, yeah that is a good point i'd actually forgotten that aspect of wilson's account in that they discovered the wind door while wilson was communicating with the native peoples about how the Wendigo outbreaks started occurring there to begin with in mm. part of like, how was there a Wendigo outbreak? When we tend to know like the first accounts happened all the way down here in Mississippi. And then there was more outbreaks as the Ismalia landed on shore and everything like that. But Which in the means meantime, that yeah. it occurred across the world and mm -hmm. we have communications from the rest of the world that are talking about this happening. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Something that comes to mind only now after our original conversation is there is another potential strategy in place with Arlington putting this account in the handbook. Because the Wendigo are a known threat. Individual communities may feel at this point that maybe they can handle the Wendigo enough to protect themselves. But if there are portals to another world that anything could come through, even something worse than the Wendigo, then maybe that is a threat that could only possibly be met by a fully staffed and operational federal army. The overall goal of the handbook is to counteract fear with facts. But it's possible that Arlington is not above using facts to push people just a little bit closer to yes by suggesting that there are things that they would not be able to face alone. Huh. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. That ends our question list for now. So the next time that you'll be hearing from us, we've already touched in several places on certain aspects of the individual stories mm. uh because it it's necessary to talk about them in the framework of how do they contribute to thomas's goals as mm. opposed to them being stories in their own right but next time we are going to talk a lot more about them as individual vignettes and mm. insight into the past and the present of this new world and what those stories say about the individuals and further mm. bring new century to life, so to speak. Parts of new century mm. that we have not seen up till now. Yes. The way we've been talking about Cartographer's Handbook up to this point has very much been guided by this sort of question of what does this the inclusion of this part of the book say about what Thomas is trying to accomplish here? Like, why does Thomas include this bit? So we, you can't help but make some 
like observations about the characters because this even though it's this manifesto it is very much built out of the accounts of people of characters mm -hmm. and that's a, because it's a way to appeal to people is to try to not get them to wrap their head around ideas and statistics that are far too vast and at one point you're even given literal statistics of the census of america but those i don't remember the <laughs> numbers there i remember the you accounts remember the people more, yeah. and that's the point that's what that's the best way to communicate these ideas my point is that with the book with our discussion so far it's very much been with not analysis of the people in these stories but of the in-universe author the in-universe like editor so to speak to see why he has constructed the book in the way he has but i think that as the functionality exactly the functionality that's precisely what it is is that cartographer's handbook has this overarching question of okay well i am aware right away that this is trying to achieve this express purpose you are essentially occupying the position of the jury that Arlington is making his case towards. Mm, mm, and mm. now we get to almost sort of don our usual hats of just kind of analyzing uh, Cartographer's Handbook less as an argument and like a sort of cohesive argument with citations brought in of all these different like individual accounts. And we get to look at it more as a compilation of stories, which I am looking forward to because there are some ones that are slight indications of where the flow of New Century would go from here. Because we must remind you all that this was the first New Century book, so it's going to be... I, I'm going to be interested to actually kind of go into how much this does or does not feel like a book considering the range of sort of time spans that we've been talking about new century and not just in our main episodes but in news of the century and in interviews with cast members and everything this is going to be kind of like the starting point in seeing how it compares yeah and before we close out when you use the term that Thomas was like making a case for the cartographers in the RSA, it suddenly brought me the mental image of the idea of Thomas as a lawyer, which we know mm. he has experience as. Uh, this is what he was, yes, this is what he was doing yeah. prior to rejoining the army. So the cartographer's handbook is literally. As you say, well, that's the other thing is that you use the term jury. So he has, he has opening statements. He has witnesses. He has facts. He has evidence. And he has a closing statement. This is literally a case being put to the court of, of America. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's... Fuck. I mean, this is why I'm thankful for this series, because uh, as much as it's about sort of celebrating like the strengths of the best of the new century, it also helps me to actually put into perspective the things I never noticed about ones that were maybe lower up on my rankings. And 
mm-hmm. I appreciate cartographers so much more now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's one of the ongoing threads that I was already pushing towards is that our exploration of Let Them Go and of Secret Rooms mm. gave me a greater appreciation of the whole of the narrative, even if there are certain stories and journeys and arcs that I prefer more. Exactly. At least in, in, in the case of Let Them Go, it wasn't even a case of, is this a good story or not? It was in, in the case of, this was a difficult story for me to process due to the genre framing and that a full deconstruction of it sort of got me over any of those misgivings. And uh, that's exactly what I'm, what is happening here is that I'm mm-hmm. gaining an extra, like this now gains an extra level of like, oh, wow, I can consider it from this perspective. So I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, that, yeah. After our after the trials and tribulations that we went through during some of the you did darker... that on purpose. <laughs> no, no, that literally, this has to be a collaboration. It does <laughs> because I think both of us are capable of pattern matching and fitting the pieces together in ways that the other doesn't necessarily see. But there's the whole experience of writing the outline my positing ideas to you, opinions to you, questions to you, and your response to that. But until we actually start vocalizing some of these things, it's not until that actually happens that we sometimes find the right puzzle piece that makes certain ideas come together for us. You know? It's the whole idea of, like, we have the capacity to see these correlations, but we have to turn the narrative or the framework or the components in such a way that everything lines up perfectly. Mm -hmm. So the dialogue between you and me is essential to the greater understanding that we come away with once we're done. Yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm good conversationalist. <laughs> Me do words good, yes. Mm. You do uh. do words good, Greg. You <laughs> Well done. I uh that last observation, I'm still reeling from it. <laughs> yeah. Uh that's it. That that's us. That's for today. And mm-hmm. next time we'll talk about the stories on another trip through the window. Take care. This is such a delightful ending that I hate to spoil the positive energy that we culminated in. After all, it's a book about coming back from calamity. But that doesn't mean we can't have some fun along the way. Having said that, as I came closer to the end of editing this episode, and reflecting on the things that we have said, and the many more things that we will say, It's hard to not also reflect on current events that bring us further into 2021. 2020 was a long, hard year, a culmination of many long, hard years beforehand, one could say going all the way back to 2015. Before we knew just how bad things would get, 
just having Trump be a voice for the ugliest parts of our society. 2021 is better, but even this week, we have more of the trial of Derek Chauvin, the man charged with the killing of George Floyd. We have stories of a 13-year-old Adam Toledo killed by police. We have horrible draconian laws passed that affect not just trans people as a whole, but children with even less power and agency due to their youth and inexperience and dependence on their parents. The fact that everything isn't going to shit just highlights all of the horrible things that are actually happening and making the world a worse place. I couldn't talk about Arlington back in 2020 because everything was so bad, and I simply could not add to it by trying to unpack the darkness in that book at the same time. I needed things to be a little bit better, a little easier. But easier is not the same as easy, as this very week proves. If the handbook is a historical document detailing a horrible sequence of events that America is only starting to come back from, then talking about it now, in 2021, feels weirdly thematic. Trump's America is the horrible time that we are coming back from, and the road forward into a better place is still a long one, because there is so much wrong that needs to be fixed. Those of us that care, we need to help, we need to work, we need to do the best that we can, even if it is only to support the greater energy and drive and power and insight of the younger generations. We need to be the change. To close us out, a song that I heard thanks to watching the movie On the Basis of Sex, a 2018 biographical legal drama about the life and times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. May she rest in peace. The lyrics speak for themselves, and the music makes me cry. Until next time, this is Kesha with Here Comes the Change. Keep turning. I hope I leave this place better than I found it. Oh, it's hard, I know it's hard to be the lightning in the dark. Told on tight, you'll be alright. Child. 
So you said, like I said on your three, so when you started at three, I just can't uh, record. Oh <laughs> I mean, it's fine. It's fine. It's just, oh boy. <laughs> I don't think it's going to make a difference either way. It's fine. Touching um, all sorts of wood, because of course it's the one that we say that, that things, snags happen. But now the, the snags happened on the previous podcast. And anyway. I'm sorry, did we need to do the whole, like, lethal up in three? Or you like, you go one, two, and then go on three, or then one, two, three, and then... <laughs> the whole thing we have to clarify. <sighs> God. It's fine. <laughs> I think that once I finish Nightfall, which could be sooner than uh, later, we'll have an idea of when that recording session will happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Are you going to drink coffee? Am I going to drink coffee? I <laughs> yeah. think so. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. All right. I've got a, I've got a brand that I've got to stick to. So. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, I'm just saying that I, your mileage may vary. Um, mm. One of the things that I covered at the end of the part two of Panther Soul is that I think that our discussion of Nightfall is going to be more subdued than the last two have been. You're going to be the best one to speak as to how what kind of a mood you're going to want to be in for discussing this story. Um, so you know, keep in mind that you know maybe coffee, maybe tea. 
de- de- depending on what uh, what kind of Mr. T you want to bring to the. I'll pity the fool. I'll pity the fool. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. This this whole experience of uh, of Maureen calling you Mr. Toby and now Mr. T is just very entertaining to me. I I really this is really important. I am by far and away the furthest removed from being like earning the name Mr. T that you could possibly imagine. <laughs> I am not a Mr. T. I'm okay. absolutely a Mr. Toby because that sounds like a Beatrix Potter character and that is very much the energy I bring to the table. Mm. I am not bringing a Mr. T energy to the table. It's the eye of the Maureen, it's the thrill of the fight, rising up to the challenge of our rivals. You know, I've never actually seen Rocky. I don't know the rest of that song lyrics. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm going to tell you that that was me blowing a raspberry with my mouth just then. Yay, us! We're, we're finally getting back into the swing We're of back things. into it, yeah. We're no, back, uh, baby! We're back! Yeah. <laughs> we got one! I... <laughs> 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 um, okay, so we've got that under the belt. And... It's when I got the all along. You're pushing it now. You're I really serious. am. <laughs> And uh, secondly, I apologize for being such an asshole and just cutting in (laughs) repeatedly. I apologize. Like, I I made it out to be worse than it actually was. But, (laughs) you know, I... I, um, Let's just face it. I'm just glad to be discussing this stuff again because it feels like it's been forever since we've had one of these in-depth conversations uh, in the way that we began this entire Mm. journey, I guess you could say. And I think the fact that you're able to cut in like that is actually an expression of your overall confidence of being behind the microphone and engaging with me instead of just simply responding to everything I say. So I'm going to take it as a good sign. I, I think it's a good sign. Yeah. Mm. Now that we've sort of laid out the individual components of the cartographer's hand point as manifesto, uh, I... Hand point? <laughs> <sighs> well, that's our warm-up. <laughs> I think I, I know what it is. I think I know what some of my laughs sound like. You ever seen that like comic that people use where it's a thoughtfully well-considered joke and it's just nothing, and then it's something which is just inane and like stupid, and then the second panel is the same person going, wheeze. <laughs> it's, I wheeze <laughs> when I laugh. I will go, Oh, this is nightmarish to listen to. These are the worst outtakes ever, and I apologize. It's okay. <laughs> mm, all right. <clears throat> Through the wheeze door. 
That's definitely where we left off. So, sorry, can you say that one more time? Uh, we're starting off from 3D. In 3D. I'm done. I know that we're, the best thing would be to just get into it. I know I'm probably rambling, and I swear I haven't had coffee. I swear that's not the case. It's just, uh, you know, those different emotions that can just take the steering wheel at a, inside out. I think what I have is anxiety slash fear, just sort of uh, frantically typing words into mouth speech mode. Uh, and it's just basically me wanting to make sure that like and and you've never given the impression to me, Greg, that you're the sort of person who would get very like upset with me for things that like right. Are going but that's, with me. but when you when you when you get into these mode, you're not thinking rationally anyway. Yeah, you know, no. I, I I completely understand that. No, but like I I do want to stress though, uh, not to stress just in general. I never want to stress, uh, but I want to stress to you. Um, I don't want to deliver stress to you. What the fuck am I saying? Um, <laughs> it's okay. This is this is yeah. gonna go. This is content that's gonna go into the outtakes. It's fine. But <laughs> I do want to stress that this is some of my favorite stuff that I've done like mm. over the years. Between like, I do want to get back into writing on like I still have the Inquisitive J as that like little nickname mm. of mine, and it's the thing I used to call that little blog of mine and like i don't think i've visited my own tongue tumblr page for a long time but like i do want to get back into that because it's fun but because of the amount of effort that those were i think this was always something that was more sustainable for me because even if we got zero feedback from other people just having the interaction with you made it so much more like fulfilling and mm -hmm. something to kind of fuel me to like get involved in the next one. Whereas sometimes when I would write a really detailed thing for my blog, it would be, I would feel an endorphin rush of, I'm really pleased with the work I did from this, but it would be difficult to motivate myself to get back into the next one. But I've never really felt that with our show. I, I help provide you a framework, is the thing. Abs absolutely, and you keep me honest, Greg. You keep me an honest man. <laughs> yeah, recording. It is the answer, is the reason that everyone happens content. <laughs> so, that, that is not a piece of pop culture you would be aware of because it was a children's television programming that I watched on public television uh, wgbh or i guess it has an, a couple different call signs but like you know it's the it's the station that had um sesame street on it and everything uh, you know? cbs no that's not public no no, no. Uh, cbs is definitely hidden yeah is not public television it's paid for <laughs> by you know it's making trying to make a profit and everything like that no i um, don't know i barely watch british television channels now <laughs> i mean uh, that's the that's the other thing is that um it was american public television that first made me aware of doctor who uh, because they were showing old reruns of um 
crap, I'm suddenly forgetting his name. The um <laughs> the one that with the scarf. Tom Baker. Tom Baker, yes. Mm. I remember distinctly seeing episodes of Tom Baker uh on the channel that my mom I think was watching mm. from time to time when I was younger. And uh as an aside, uh, since the subject oh, has come up the Wendigos uh, are back. They're they're back and <laughs> in greater numbers. Um no. Uh, though it is a Saturday night, so usually what that is, is most likely the different, like, delivery guys taking, uh, uh okay. takeaway food to different people's houses because we are still in lockdown, so, you know, that's the right thing to do. No mm -hmm. one should be going out to get their food, they should all be, uh, handing over money for suspicious packages and all of that. And doing their drugs at home like a responsible adult. <laughs> Here is your political commentary for the for the, for the, <laughs> the more you know. <laughs> oh, so the more you know is something you're aware of. Then. Look, I, I'm on in the, in the internet. Most people are making American culture references. You it's get true. some through osmosis. Uh, but, I, 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 uh, but I acquired a number of pieces of uh knowledge of british programming because back during the old days of when cable tv first started becoming a thing mm -hmm. there was the channel one of the channels for children nickelodeon mm -hmm. oh yeah i remember that was a lot of the programming that it was getting was specifically stuff that it licensed from the bbc originally. Ah, so ah. i got to experience things like danger mouse Yes, yes. See, I remember and, like uh, Duckula, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. See, like, wait, Duckula was British? I thought it was because Duckula was originally introduced in Danger Mouse. Oh, I, I did not realize that connection. Uh. Uh, the expanded universe of Duckula. My, <laughs> not. <laughs> When's that getting a nostalgic reboot out of DuckTales that gets cancelled yeah. prematurely? I uh, to be honest, I thought Duckula was actually part of the like the ensemble cast of like that Ducktales and mm. uh, oh, crap. What's the name of the one who flaps uh, uh, and oh, the danger uh, that Darkwing, flaps in the night? Darkwing, Darkwing Duck. Duck. That's it. Yeah. Um, uh, I just assumed that he was one of the characters in that who got a spinoff. Um, <laughs> yeah. No. 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 Let's get dangerous.